Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on With Respect is Chris Siriano. Chris is a real estate agent, broker, and that's one thing, part of his life, but we're going to be talking tonight about his avocation, which is the House of David. Now, not everybody has heard of the House of David because we're broadcast uh, around the world, but it's a fascinating group, and he has been responsible for a fascinating and excellent and award-winning video about this group, the House of David. Won many awards, uh, including the Cannes Film, Fe Film Festival. With respect, we have Chris Siriano. We'll be right back. So, Chris, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks, John. Well, it's you've got a great topic. Um, in our area, there's, there's a lot of people who know the history of the program we're going to be talking about, the group that we're talking about, the House of David. But there's an awful lot of our listeners uh, around the world who have not heard of the House of David. So I'm going to ask you to start off. What is or what was the House of David? Yeah, the House of David was uh, basically started as a religious organization that was founded in 1903 on the basis of a Christianity and a millennial, millennialist-type faith uh, founded by Benjamin Purnell and his wife Mary that had traveled up from Paducah, Kentucky to start their faith. Uh, it quickly became way more than that, and uh, with the influx of thousands of people from around the world to join their faith they started to build an amusement park in uh, 1905 and by 1913 it was a booming amusement park with uh, miniature trains and a zoo and uh, orchestras and bands and vaudeville shows and talent shows and then in 1914 it started they started playing baseball so it was a huge huge attraction with over a half a million people a year coming to uh, enjoy the place and and feel it and see it and uh and that was way back when they didn't even have cars so uh they, they really grew and grew and grew and and really made their mark on america uh, in a very unique way you know you, you said that um, that they were attracting followers from all around the world i mean you you are literally saying the truth 
That is, people from all around the world came to this community. And what, what did they come for? And what were the kind of the rules of the game when they, when they came? They, they had laid down the roots of uh, this uh, religion back in Great Britain 200 years before. And uh, with different people, uh, Joanna Southcott, George White, James Jezreel, John Rowe, all uh, participating in uh, preaching uh, this type of faith, which basically promised life everlasting. If you were a Christian, communal life, uh, vegetarian, and lived a life of celibacy and believed uh, the teachings that they taught, they could. They basically stated that they would teach you how to live forever. They would give you eternal life of the body, so you'd never die. And because of the fact that uh, the, the roots were laid way back before the guy started in Benton Harbor, Michigan, uh, they sent the message of telegraph around the world that here he was, their long-awaited seventh messenger, final messenger from God, before paradise would come. And so people flocked in from every corner of the globe, uh, from Australia, the Netherlands, Great Britain, France, South America, Canada, all over. They just came from everywhere, all over uh, North American continent. And they, they came so quickly and uh, so many that they couldn't build housing quick enough so it it was a really really cool unique thing in in uh, michigan and american history now th this group uh had certain living standards and you've mentioned them um, uh one of them being celibacy another being vegetarianism uh, what else did they do to distinguish themselves uh the men Thought, they quoted a scripture in Leviticus that uh, thou shalt not round thy chin nor thy forehead, something to that effect. And they believed that man should be in the likeness of Jesus. So they never allowed the men to cut their hair or shave uh, for their whole entire life. So even the boys that came to join early, that came from Australia and from Europe uh, and different parts of America, that their folks were studying the same type of faith. They came with super long hair, like waist-length hair. So they were unique in that respect. Um, they generated their own electricity. They had their own power plants way back in 1912. And even to the fact that they sold electricity to the local city, Benton Harbor, because they didn't have electricity then. Um, they, they were very entrepreneurial people. They uh, had factories and foundries and over 100,000 acres of farmland. They were amazing farmers uh, with amazing crop. They had uh, steam engine trains and steam uh, ships on the Great Lakes, uh, a diamond mine in, in Australia, a gold mine in western Oklahoma, a coal mine in uh, Kentucky. And they just... They were similar in a way to Amish, but they let us come into their world. They, they invited us into their world so we could enjoy their music and their creative minds and artwork. And, and uh, it was just a really rare part of, uh, of early uh, Christianity-based uh, American faith. You know, we've had um, evidence of different kinds of religious groupings that uh, attracted a lot of people and then came to ill. They, things didn't work out. Uh, either they, they predicted the end of the world would take place on June 1st of whatever it was, 
and they would huddle in caves or in the, in the mountaintops, and uh, it never happened. And so there had to be a readjustment. Well, maybe Christ may, meant uh, July 1st or whatever. But there was this one, this group uh, was, in fact, you call them millennialists, and I, and I think that uh, it's, my understanding of millennialists is they, they did believe in, quote, the millennium, which meant the, the second coming of Christ, uh, was a real and tangible thing which they expected to happen within the uh, lifetime of the, at least of the uh, of the group, right? That's right. Yep, yep. And they, uh, you know, they they were so devout to this faith, and uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to understand why in the world would you give up? Uh, you know, a lot of these people are super successful and uh, had great wealth and great. Uh, holdings that came from around the world and and why would they give all that up to come to a place that was so unknown and and live uh, a very simple humble life and uh, awaiting this message and and the power the message was so powerful that they wait they could convince people even that had no idea of the faith they could convince them to stop what you're doing and come to Benton Harbor and join us, and we will teach you how to live forever on earth. And, and with that message, they gave up everything. They gave up, basically, they could come married. They could come married with children. But from the time they joined until paradise came, they had to live like brothers and sisters. The men lived in certain mansions. The women lived in other mansions. The kids, until they were 14, lived different parts of the property. They taught their own schools and and it, and it was worth all that, giving up all that, because they thought, because they thought tomorrow it's all going to be paradise and we're going to live a thousand years of paradise on earth. And, you know, they stuck to that faith until the very end of their lives. They never changed that. What <clears throat> this, this these people were brought about, brought here, by the way, before I start that, some people may not know where Benton Harbor, Michigan is. Tell us about geographically, what are the, the constructs, the constrictions, the demography of a uh, geography of Benton Harbor, Michigan? Benton Harbor, Michigan is a place that they uh, set down their route, and which is on the uh, southwest uh, tip of Michigan and the southern eastern tip of Lake Michigan. It was really, really well known back at the turn of the century and, and before as uh, the largest buyer to grower fruit market in the world. It was massive amounts of uh, farming and peach farming and cherries and apples. And, and it was a, a tourist mecca where people would come from Chicago and Milwaukee and they would take steam engine trains and horses and buggies to come here and see the beautiful uh, shoreline and uh, oftentimes it's been referred to as this best kept secret in the world because it it's like the ocean here and uh, and and, they, and people flocked in to feel that and see that and it's always been a tourist attraction for yeah. that reason well you know it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, it's like an ocean because I have many friends who come over uh, for the first time to the Midwest and uh, see Lake Michigan or uh, other lakes, uh, Huron and, and uh, Superior, and they have no conception of the size of them. And they, and I remember two very sophisticated uh, uh, couple, a, a couple that came and uh, 
stood on the beach and they repeated the same thing I heard from so many others saying, it's, it's like an ocean. And they're just right off. So he, it's 60 miles across. Nope, you can't, can't see the cross. It's the lake. It, it's, it's powerful, fresh water. Um, but it, it became a huge, a huge place. You know, in that turn of the century, uh, Benton Harbor had some of the world's largest manufacturers of many different things. And, and as, as the city grew, they uh, advertised that come here, we will give you free land if you start business here. So people flocked here from all over the world, from New York and the West Coast and uh, creative and Benteen people and entre- entrepreneurs. And, and it just grew like a wildfire. And that's, I think that was part of the attraction for Benjamin Purnell. So Benjamin Purnell and Mary, where did they start from and how did they get to Benton Harbor? Benjamin Purnell was born in 1861 in Paducah, Kentucky, and he was born, uh, he was the seventh son in the family. Um, I think there were 11 children, Um, a very destitute family. They really had a tough time, and it was during the time of fire and brimstone uh, speeches around the campfire and uh, hard times, uh, Civil War times, and Um, They started there. He started uh, basically almost raised by his 18-year-old brother, uh, almost adopted off because his folks uh, couldn't afford to uh, raise him. Uh, But he, uh, when he was a young guy, maybe 13, 14 years old, he was given the King James Bible as a Christmas present, as as his first uh, cherished gift. And he memorized that Bible inside and out, front to back, every verse, every word. And by the time he was 15 years old, he could stand on street corners and and preach what he said was the word of God. And he kind of mixed that with some of these other messenger books that were being distributed throughout the world from these other people that had come before him, uh, starting in uh, England a couple of years before. And by the time he was 16 years old, he had met Mary his, and uh, married his wife. She was also from Kentucky. And they set off to uh, be itinerant preachers in a covered uh, wagon where he made, he learned to make brooms uh, to be able to sell brooms that he made to be able to eat. And that's how they traveled through the Midwest and they'd stop town to town to town and befriend people and uh, they'd put them up and feed them and, and give them shelter. Uh, and allowed them to stand on street corners and preach what he said was the Word of God. And eventually, they came to Benton Harbor. And what, if you know, what attracted them? Now we're talking just about Benjamin and Mary. What attracted them to the Benton Harbor area? As they traveled up through the Midwest, they had had stopped in a a town called Fostory, Ohio where they, that's the first place that they really set down roots. And that's where he started his own church for the very first time. He called it the God house and it quickly attracted hundreds and hundreds of followers. And then there was a midway through really uh, his early success story. It was a catastrophe that happened. And uh, his daughter, Hetty Purnell, 
had uh, been involved in a fireworks factory and it uh, exploded one day and uh, everybody inside died and uh, imploded basically. Um, and because of the fact that he was teaching that if you believed in this faith that you would live forever, uh, him and Mary denied the fact that that could have been their daughter inside the fireworks factory. And the townspeople came and they wanted a positive identification of her remains and they would not do that. And so they were driven out of that town and they had earlier made contact with uh, Albert and Louis Boschke who owned the Boschke Wagon Factory, which was the second largest wagon factory in America behind Studebaker's. And the Boschkes had studied and devoutly studied under the Sixth Messenger uh, group, which had set up a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So Benjamin contacted them, the Boschkes, and said, I'm, I'm, I'm the seventh messenger. God has given me uh, the message that I should come to Benton Harbor, Michigan, and join you into this paradise on earth. And the Boschkes, because they were so uh, well off and so successful and so tied to not only the Grand Rapids congregation, but congregations around the world of this faith, they, uh, they invited Ben and Mary to Benton Harbor. They actually financed the purchase of uh, uh, Eastman Springs Resort, which later became Eden Springs, where the House of David Park was. And, uh, and they gave them over $400,000 in their cash, which was in 19, the fall of 1902, uh, which you know equates to tens of millions today. And that's how they started. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Chris Siriano, who is the, uh, besides being a real estate uh, broker, he also is the producer, the, uh, the spirit behind a video, which has a video documentary about the House of David, uh, called House of David, Life Everlasting. We'll be talking more about that as we go along. This is John Smetanka on With Respect, and we'll be right back. With respect, with Chris Siriano, who is the moving force behind a um, documentary called House of David, Life Everlasting. And we've been talking about the origins of the House of David and the major players, uh, Ben and uh, Mary Purnell. This is John Smetanka on With Respect. So, Chris, when we left off, we these uh, folks made it to uh, Benton Harbor uh, with the, the uh, financial support of a couple uh, who also were true believers. And uh, You know, 
the way you're describing it, Chris, I'm amazed at how charismatic the couple, or certainly Ben, uh, Benjamin Purnell, was. Uh, did he do it by singing, by preaching, did just the power of personality? How, how, did, how did he lure all these people um, to, his, uh, to his religion? You know, it's, it's written uh, many places that he was an extremely charismatic man, um, extremely intelligent, highly, highly versed uh, with the Bible and, and uh, everything that it, it was trying to share. And because of the fact that he knew it so well, he also studied all religions. So when he would go to your street corner where you lived in, in your little town, and he would stand on that street corner, he could argue the house of David faith against any faith. And he was that confident in his teachings, and he was extremely convincing. Um, and uh, he was a soft-spoken guy, you know, good-looking, charismatic guy, but he knew, he knew the Bible front to back. Um, it is said that, you know, he could easily take verses out of context to make it state what his message was meant to state and quote scripture while he did it but he had a, a powerful powerful message and the fact that these other people came 200 years before him that were teaching this same millennialist type faith and they had all taught the first one the second one all the way through the sixth messengers that there would be a seventh and final messenger from God that would be sent to the new world. And that's when paradise would come. And of course, we know the new world is America. That's what the rest of the world called the United States was the new world. And so when he now announced to the world with the help of the Boschke's funding uh, through telegraphs everywhere around the globe, that here he is, he's here. It's like, it's like the second coming of Christ, exactly the same. He's here. Stop what you're doing. Get to Benton Harbor, Michigan, where you'll live. You'll learn to live right into paradise on earth, a thousand years of paradise on earth and never die. It was a powerful message. And because the roots were laid deep already, he, you know, he kind of stepped into that and just and ran with it. Well, now you've talked about how he was uh, a powerful and charismatic person. And that the people he brought to his uh, his uh, group, his uh, to his uh, Benton Harbor home, uh, were all different kinds of people. There was, uh, as you say, business people and uh, artistic performers, and and on and on throughout the whole range of of human activity, as I recall. And he he still, but he organized these people into a powerful economic as well as social force. How did that happen? He was an amazing, amazing visionary. He uh, brought people in from all over the world, all walks of life. He could sit down with you and read you to the type of person, the type of ability that you had. You might not even understand that in yourself at the time, but he could see that, that maybe... Maybe you came to Benton Harbor as, uh, you know, a sculptor 
Um, but maybe he also could see that you were an amazing musician and just didn't really have confidence in that. And he would build a group around you with that type of person and raise your talent to the highest possible level with his money, with his connections, with his vision. He created the greatest in the world of so many different things. And uh, from some some of the greatest baseball teams that traveled uh, the country and parts of the world back in the 20s and 30s were House of David ball teams. He had some of the best built steam engine trains in the history of trains um, and on and on and on. They had inventions and patents that were mind blowing. And this one group of people, I call them a group of Einsteins because there was no limit to what they were uh, allowed to do. There was no limit on money. There was no limit on help. And so if you came there with some kind of talent from whatever part of the world you were from, he could figure that talent out. And that was your only focus other than the studying the word of God and, and the scriptures. That was your only focus. And he, he took people to the highest level possible. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned an interesting uh, factoid. Baseball. Now, uh, those of us who have uh, been around um, have been familiar with the House of David uh, baseball program. Um, we're still learning about how back in the teens and 20s and 30s, they were a superb group of athletes. Tell me about that. It's mind-blowing how great they actually were in baseball. You know, Benjamin loved baseball. He loved sports in general. Um, they, there's a large uh, stock of young guys in this colony that had a whole lot of pinup energy, and he recognized super athletic talents and quite a number of them that came from us, uh, Australia. Don Tucker, George Anderson, a group of brothers that came from Arkansas by the name of Tally Brothers. And he just decided, you know what, let's form a team. Let's start playing some baseball in 1914. And by, by 1915, they won the Michigan State Championship. And uh, they were so good and so uh, fascinated the world because here's a team of long-haired, whiskered baseball players, something you don't ever see in your lifetime, um, that are great ball players. And by 1917, they're written about in the Spalding Baseball Digest, which is like the Bible of baseball. By 1919, they're on the front page of the New York Times and the front page of major and small town papers around the country. And, uh, and then by 1920, they were in such big demand to come play teams from all over the whole North American continent that they started playing even the Negro teams back when the black guys couldn't play in the majors because they were black. The House of David was not allowed to play in the majors because it would not shave or cut their hair. And uh, it's just an amazing piece of early baseball history. Well, there's a special relationship that uh, uh, I've heard you describe about uh, the African-American uh, players and, and, and personnel and also the House of David and how they uh, interacted to ch make some changes in society. Yeah, that's right. The, you know, we just we did did this uh, documentary film that went around the world and and uh, won thirty five uh, international film festival awards. And 
And it's, it's an amazing story because of the fact that here's this funny looking white, long haired, whiskered baseball team that's, that's taking America by storm and beating most everybody over 70% of the games. And they partnered up with the Negro teams because of the fact that they, uh, they both were kind of uh, had some prejudice against uh, one another, uh, not against each other, but uh, the world against them. They teamed up and uh, they, came, they traveled with the Kansas City Monarchs and sometimes the Homestead Grays or uh, uh, Piney Woods Negroes and some of the other black teams. And uh, they, would, they would really put on some shows and, and uh, they went down as being really the only white team that ever really strongly participated in the Negro Leagues were the House of David teams. And they worked with each other. They helped each other. They, uh, the House of David invented the pepper game, which if you're familiar with the Harlem Globetrotters and the, and the funny uh, antics that they do, that was invented by the House of David baseball team where during the fourth inning stretch, three guys would get out in the middle of the field and throw the ball between each other as fast as they could between their legs around their neck and juggle it and two, three balls uh, were going back and forth and sometimes a mitt and sometimes a bat. And then at the end, the, everything would disappear. The last ball would disappear and the crowd would become silent and the house of David guy would pick his head up and he had the ball stuck underneath his whiskers. And mm. that it was just a, it was a funny, great attraction that really entertained America the Negro teams were also funny and very, very talented and uh, entertaining, and they just really meshed really well together. Well, there's also another aspect to it, and that is that they didn't st step back from um, dealing with prejudice uh, when it came to accommodations and who would who would play, uh, you know, in local towns, right? That's right. Yep. They uh, by late 1920s, the House of David it went down in history. If you read uh, the uh, baseball history, uh, according to news accounts, they drew the biggest crowds in the history of baseball from the mid 1920s to the mid 1930s, and they set attendance records everywhere across America, town after town after town. It was recorded the largest crowd ever in the history of that town was when they played the house of David everywhere. So because of that, they, they would schedule double headers, sometimes triple headers, but mostly double headers across America. <clears throat> a lot of, a lot of teams love to play double headers and what they would do, they would show up with two teams, the house of David team in one bus, the Negro team in the other bus. The black guy team was uh, that was asked to park just outside of town, and uh, they and it was told that that as they crossed the country, 50 miles outside of the hosting town, these these little towns were desolate. Nobody was around, almost like a ghost town. And they would get to the host town, and it would be like a giant festival thousands and thousands of people in the streets and everywhere and the house of david guys knew how to entertain a lot of them were they loved to dance they loved to play music they all learned to play music because of the australians that came in large numbers and taught them 
they would they would play music in the streets they'd get people dancing they would uh, stand in front of the barber shops and with their back to the windows and wave their long wavy hair and they braid each other's hair and whiskers in front of the barber shop and they'd sign baseballs they'd hug people and they just really get the town pumped up uh, and they'd say uh early on way early before the game they would call a meeting in the baseball uh, host uh, manager's room in the stadium and they would uh, stand at attention and uh, you know Lloyd would say you know Chris we were pretty scruffy looking guys sometimes we'd go two three days without a shower we got long hair and whiskers and wool uniforms and you know, we were, we were rough, rough looking, but we were respectful. And they would stand there and say, you know, Mr. Uh, baseball Manager, we're so, so proud to be here. Uh, we love that your town is just packed with people waiting for us. And, and uh, we promise you we're going to put on a heck of a show today. Uh, but here's the deal, sir. Before you play us in the, in the first game of the doubleheader, you're going to play this black team, this Negro League team called the Kansas City Monarchs or one of the other black teams. And they're sitting on our other bus, sir, right outside the city limits. And they're going to come into town and they're going to play your team the first game because you never let them come into this stadium and play before. But they're going to play you guys on this first uh, game. And, this, and, and then the second game, we're going to play you. And then after the game tonight, we're, we're both going to go to the restaurant that you always want us to eat at. And we're both going to stay at the hotel because we booked rooms for both of us, sir. And if you can't make that happen, sir, it's okay. We're going to go on to the next town that's waiting on rain check so we can play their team. And it's fine. If you can't play us, it's perfectly fine. You know, and they would say, oh, my gosh, the, the ba baseball manager would throw a fit and, you know, just his fuse would blow and he would punch the desk or punch the wall or throw a book across the room or slam the door. And a lot of times would call us names that weren't our names. And he said, you know, guess what? Every time this guy would this manager, whoever it was in that day, that town would come back and say, you know what, House of David, we'll play you guys. And we'll play these guys and we'll do what you're saying, but don't you ever expect to come back to my town again, ever. And Lloyd told the story, Lloyd Dallager, the old House of David catcher would tell the story and say, Chris, we'd put on a show. The house, the, the Negro teams were great teams. It was like a bunch of Michael Jordans in baseball uniforms out there that the people had never seen before. And they entertained them like nobody else. And they were comical and they were talented and they probably beat the local team bad and maybe just a little bit, but they loved it. And of course, everybody was there in that town to watch us and we'd put on an amazing show. And at the end of both games, it'd be a standing ovation. And at the end of ours, it'd be like fireworks. And, uh, and then when we both eat at the restaurants, we tip for both teams and they were, you know, House of David was well oiled. So they, they didn't hold back on the money ever. And, uh, and then they were real respectful. Everybody was in the hotels and then we move on. And he said, guess what? Next year, we both get invited back. And we did that town after town after town all across America, way before Jackie Robinson broke into the majors. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Chris Siriano, the movement person behind 
uh, um, a fascinating documentary called House of David, Life Everlasting. This is John Smetankan with respect, and we will be right back. respect with Chris Siriano, the uh, director slash creator of <coughs> the documentary House of David, Life Everlasting. This is John Smetanka. So Chris, when we left off, you were talking a lot about the baseball teams, but th- they had other aspects to their, their community life, and uh, that uh, included music. You talked about them dancing when they went into town, at uh, these various towns, but but they had music all around. Was their part of their life? Uh, what what? Tell us about that. Yeah, by 1912-1913, the amusement park was in full swing. The House of David amusement park. It was considered like a pre-Disneyland type amusement park in American history. Uh, even Walt Disney came there and studied the park in the late 40s and bought a House of David train, took it back to Anaheim with him in the early 50s. But it was a huge, huge, beautiful resort with hotels and restaurants, a zoo. Uh, but their main focus and main draw from the day they started until the day they closed 70 years later was was their music because they had vaudeville shows they had jazz bands and syncopated bands and blues bands and ukulele bands and men's orchestras and women's orchestras and children's orchestras they drew people from all over the entire planet to come feel the music and see the music and because of the australian people that came in 1908, 85 of them joined on the same day. That day brought actors and actresses and massive amounts of music talent. And uh, uh, Joe, uh, two brothers that were stringed instrument makers, and they went on to teach all of the House of David members about music. So you could go to this amusement park, which was huge, and uh, they'd come in on cruise ships. They'd come in on trolley cars and horses and buggies or Model Ts or Packards. They would flock in massive amounts of people daily uh, to feel the music and see the music. And it, it would cost you like a nickel to get in if you wanted the best seats. You didn't have to pay a dime to get into the park and listen. And you could get hillside seats for free. They, they, they were proud of themselves about no matter what kind of money you have, come enjoy. It doesn't matter. So everything was very inexpensive. Uh, Early on, they built uh, the largest miniature railway in the world with eight small steam engine trains. There were 15-inch gauge trains, which are called quarter scale. They could haul a, a lot of passengers with one train and maybe six to eight 
passenger cars with two people side by side. They, you park your car, you get off the trolley car, you'd pay a nickel, you'd get on these trains, and that would take you way back a half a mile into the park where it would uh, deboard at the zoo. And there was a beautiful, beautiful round top train depot that still exists today. They made their own ice cream there. They invented the waffle cone there. You could, you could buy a waffle cone with amazing ice cream for a nickel. You could walk down into the valley of the park and enjoy all this amazing music for free. If you wanted the seats, the best in the house, it maybe cost you another nickel. Um, they, you know, they they were massive entertainers. They built uh, miniature gas-powered race cars that were replicas of the very earliest Indy cars that had brakes and steering. They had pony rides and massive amounts of entertainment all day every day from sun up to sundown now you got involved in this study of the of the house of david how did that come about where did you, where did you come into this you know i love to learn history from my dad who is a crazy history nut and then uh, I had a great history teacher in high school, so I fell in love with American history and ended up major in history in uh, college at Western Michigan University. I studied pre-law, and uh, so they advised history and poli-sci as a double uh, major, which I did. And I came home after graduating and wanted to learn local history. They don't teach you that at any level. So it was kind of self-taught. I went everywhere I could and read and read about local Southwest Michigan history, talked to everybody I could, and everything came back. House of David owned this. House of David invented this. The House of David, House of David, House of David. Well, I went there as a kid, and it was just a fun place to go, very entertaining place, especially after church on Sunday. We'd go grab ice cream cone, take a train ride. And um, so by the time I started studying about it, most of them were all gone. And I thought, oh, my gosh, At, you know, after after a few years of really digging in deep and really studying it extensively, I just made a decision. Somebody has got to do something to save this story. And there was nobody doing that. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to start a museum. So I founded the House of David Museum. I, I met daily with the members. There was a pretty good handful of them left. That would allow me to come there to the Shiloh mansion, to their property, sit with them, sometimes hours a day. Every day I'd take notes like a mad person, but I was used to taking great notes in eight years of undergrad. So, you know, I took good notes. I interviewed them. I, I absorbed their story. They would tell me basically anything I wanted to know. And it wasn't very long within a couple of years that they would call me and say, Chris, what time are you coming? We've got all these things we want to talk to you about. We've discovered these things that you need to go after. And so that's that's how I got started. And, it, you know, my dad used to say, Chris, you opened up Pandora's box because it really, it's 30-plus years now, and, it, and it's just been one heck of a ride. Well, you know, it's it's a Valhalla sort of place. That is, it's, uh, it's like the... Um, the gods, they, they, a place where they're going to end up, people are going to end up, uh, and then march with their lights and siren, their, 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 their uh, uh, lights and, uh, and uh, uh, music into the promised land, which was going to be life everlasting, right? 
Right, right. So um, it didn't last forever. And has this uh, also been a part of your uh, your story when you're, we're going to be talking uh, later in the show about about your video and what what kind of receptions had but uh, the 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 House of David did not uh, grow uh, after its initial burst and it finally is slowing down to to this day that's right it's just you know it it's heartbreaking to me. I mean, I love the people. I loved and love the people like they're my grandparents that I met late in life. They took me in like an ag- adopted grandson. They were so kind-hearted, so loving, so intelligent, and so humble and sharing. And it was contagious. And I wanted to learn everything I could. And sadly, you know, the, 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 the leader, Benjamin Purnell, taught that they would live, they would walk into paradise on earth. They would never die. You know, of course, he died in 1927 of tuberculosis and, you know, kind of a sudden death after uh, some sensationalized trials. And uh, he never talked that he was going to die. And they didn't expect him to die. So it was, you know, pandemonium and chaos. But they didn't have home to go home to. They had given up all their worldly possessions to join the House of David. So they had nothing except House of David life. And their brothers and sisters now were House of David people. So they didn't have dissension. And uh, and then Judge Dewhurst, who was a Supreme Court judge that came in 1918 from California, H.T. Dewhurst, he took over the leadership and he grew the colony financially, but he didn't really recruit people anymore. So the membership slowly uh, dwindled and then he died in 1947, uh, just of old age. And after he died, they didn't take any more new members again. They didn't understand they say they didn't understand what it took to be a new member, so they just stopped. So then at that point, here you are living a celibate life, not having babies to carry on and not taking any new members anymore. So it, then it became when the last one dies, that's it. And and the crazy statistic is that the, when the very last guy joined Willie Robertson in 1947 from Scotland, he's the last guy that died. So, and that's it. They just all passed away. They didn't change their faith. They didn't adopt orphans like the Shakers. The Shakers lived that celibate life and vegetarian, very similar, very parallel line with the story of the House of David, but they adopted orphans later on. The House of David didn't change. And I would ask them, you know, those six or seven of them left and I would say, oh my gosh, I don't understand. You people were so intelligent, so intelligent. It blows my mind. Why didn't you change that part? Why didn't you start having babies or start recruiting people? And they would say, you know, Chris, we lived the life that Benjamin taught us. And he taught us that even if the membership gets down to such a small number that you could fit all the people inside a closet before paradise comes, we expect it that way. So it's okay. We're, we're going we're gonna to be okay, Chris. You don't worry about us. The Lord's going to take care of us. You know, and that's the way they live every minute of every day. We're going to take another break right now. This is uh, John Spintanka on With Respect. We're talking to Chris Siriano, who is the moving force behind a, an award-winning documentary 
called The House of David, Life Everlasting. And in our next segment, we're going to be talking about that, that video of his, his documentary, and uh, where it's going and where, where you can see it. Uh, this is With Respect, and we'll be right back. back and with respect with our guest uh, this week, Chris Siriano. And we're talking now, we will be now talking about his award-winning documentary uh, about this phenomenally interesting group of people called the House of David. This is John Spataka. So Chris, I've teased, I've set it up for you. Tell me about this fascinating award-winning documentary House of David, Life Everlasting. Yeah, the, the movie um, was at the top of my bucket list, and I wanted to get the story out before it's not in my brain anymore, before it's too late in life to do that. And so I really got lucky finding a film producer from South Haven, of all places, uh, Rob Bird with Moondog Productions, and he was a Emmy Award-winning producer, and we teamed up, and he agreed to help me make a movie about the House of David. And because of 30 years of uh, me interviewing the members and interviewing players and musicians and and living around the members for 20 years plus, um, and I, you know I have over 10,000 photographs in the museum, the House of David Museum, and I have film footage. Uh, of the ball teams playing through the years and, and the bands playing, it it makes for a really great documentary. And with with uh, you know a year plus of really really intensive work between the two of us, Rob and I, um, it, we put together award winning film. And I, it was nothing even honestly. I had no idea that it was going to be even a fraction as well received as it was. And it, it, it's, it just makes my heart so happy that it not only, you know, we released it July 1st of last year um, to all the local theaters. It was sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out shows everywhere, every night. You know, we, we uh, did the big local celebration cinema almost two months and sold out shows every single time and went around uh, as much as we could, as many theaters as we could. And then we started getting invites to uh, international film festivals and people would hear about the movie through these big theaters. And so they would invite us to these uh, to be and then they would select us and then we would win. And, and uh, you know, even as of just a few days ago, I think we won our 36th International Film Festival Award and which is just mind blowing to me. 
it, it's an extremely well-received movie. It was an overview of the whole story. We kind of tried to, you know, be like an eye in the sky and just say this is how all this kind of came about without really uh, super fine details with everything. Uh, the uh, objective when we first sat down and, and shook hands and said, let's do this, was that this is a story that really uh, is like a Roots uh, uh, from uh, when we were growing up. There was a series called Roots and a five-part series. And we feel, honestly, we feel strongly that this is a 10-part series. And that was the very first one for an overview. And, uh, and you know, like, like you said, we won the Cannes, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. And uh, it's the biggest film festival in the world, biggest celebrated. We won in Hollywood and, and uh, London and Paris and all over, Yugoslavia, Romania, Italy, um, everywhere. It's, it's mind-blowing. So it makes my heart so happy to know that literally, honestly, millions of people at this point have seen it, have they've heard about it. You know, we were midway through and there was over a million people that had viewed it. And, uh, you know, now today we have it on uh, pay-per-view, it's on Amazon. We hope that it'll be on Netflix and the History Channel uh, sometime in the not-too-distant future. Um, it's a great movie. Anybody can see it at hodfilm.com. Uh, you can read the story. You can read our bios. It's very inexpensive to watch the film. Um, and right now, uh, we are just uh, trying to wrap up the second movie, and it's called House of David, Bearded Boys of Baseball. And uh, with some luck, maybe hopefully this winter, that'll be on the big screen. When we uh, started this, we talked about uh, Mary Purnell as well. Mary, his wife, uh, Benjamin's wife, uh, was a powerful figure in her own right. And after Benjamin's death, uh, the um, some internal wrangling resulted in her, as I recall, uh, taking a group of this, uh, a number of the uh, members of the House of David, and literally walked down the street out in the country uh, and founded the City of David. Uh, is that a pretty accurate short su summary of what happened? That's a very good summary. Yes. Uh, yep. During uh, time when Benjamin was uh, in some turmoil, uh, legal turmoil, um, there there was some question as to what the future of the House of David colony was going to be, and uh, and then he he passed away um, at the very end of the trials and. Because uh, Judge Dewhurst had seen the writing on the wall, he had he had kind of laid the plan out for him to take over the leadership of the House of David and not Mary. Now, Mary was with Ben from the very beginning, and she knew the faith as well as anyone except him. And she, because of Mary, the teachings were in writing. She would take notes, take those to printers and have, have them printed in book form. So she really, really, really knew the faith well, uh, front to back. Um, and uh, but Judge Dewhurst had other plans, and not, and that was for her not to be the leader after Ben died. So he went to war with Mary and in the courts, and actually ended up having to go all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court, where they finally said, you know, Mary, he's the leader. 
we are going to evict you from the house of David. And she was kicked out of her own house and asked to leave. And with, with that departure, she was granted half of the money that was in the bank at the time, which before the uh, trials was, was like over 20 million. Uh, after the trial, it was like a, over 160,000. So the money, the judge obviously moved, but nobody knew where. And so she was given like $80,000 in cash, and she was given the House of David Hotel, which is a big elaborate hotel in downtown Benton Harbor. And she was given some farmland in Bering Springs and around uh, southwest Michigan. And she walked across the street and down the road about a thousand feet with roughly half the members. And those members were mostly people that came the very earliest ones, the very uh, best inventors and most devout members to the faith actually walked with Mary. And, and she started the Israelite House of David as reorganized by Mary Purnell which later became Mary's City of David, and today most people just call it the City of David. It was the exact same faith. It was the exact same people. They were vegetarian, Christian, communal, uh, celibate people. They had their own vegetarian restaurant, their own little hotel. They had uh, the very first hospital in the area, the King David Hospital, their own Jewish doctors that came from Chicago, and uh, they played baseball. They called themselves House of David until the original House of David got a court injunction against them and said, hey, you can call yourselves House of David, but you have to designate an, uh, the difference. So you have to put an eye on your jersey that says Israelite House of David. So they they played baseball that way, and they were great baseball players, and they had orchestras and bands, and, and they were very, very, very uh, entertaining, successful people. Um, they also passed on there's one guy left that's the grandson of one of the members that came i think in the late 70s and uh, joined uh full full-blown joined maybe in the early 90s uh ron taylor but he's the last guy standing there's nobody left at this at the house of david i um we had uh, ron taylor as a guest on our show some uh two two or three years ago and uh his uh, recounting of the uh, of the split, and also the subsequent history of of the uh, city of David, or uh, whatever the Israelite House of David, as reconstructed, uh, reorganized rather by Mary Purnell, uh, was a fascinating story in and of itself. And one of the things that struck me was with Ron, and I'm going to tell you about another experience I had. They had a picture frame factory or at the House of David. And Mabel, uh, I don't know what her last name was, but Mabel and her brother uh, for years worked this picture frame factory and and uh, a framing factory. And I went there having a number of uh, paintings and, and photographs and, that I had gotten uh, framed there. And I would have long chats with Mabel about Benjamin. Uh, she would call him Brother Benjamin. Uh, and uh, and about the faith and their history, and it was absolutely fascinating. And you just you hit something uh, when you've been you described the people that you dealt with. These are pleasant, wonderful uh, human beings. Uh, I was I, in both in both Ron's case and in, in Mabel's case, uh, two different houses 
Uh, but uh, the same trait, they really are convinced um, and kind, courteous about their faith. They believed it every minute of every day of their entire life. They gave, gave it all. They never backed away from it. And they went, went to their grave believing that. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, one cool thing is uh, that, that Lloyd Dallager used to tell me was, you know what, Chris, he said, the, the thing that we believe is if you were a kind hearted, a God fearing person, you didn't have to be a house of David person. Um, as long as you were uh, those things, you'll probably join us in paradise on earth. And they didn't, they didn't think that the people that passed weren't going to go to heaven or live in paradise. They just thought some little part of their life maybe was slightly outside of the faith and that's why they died, but it didn't make them a bad person. So, you know, they looked at all of us as, as good people. They didn't look at us as outsiders or the enemy. So that, that was kind of a, a neat thing for me to feel. You know, and you, once again, we're coming to the end of our time and, and maybe when we get a chance, we'll do another show with you, talk about other aspects of these two groups. But one of the things that uh, has struck me is that in some manner, unfortunately today, we have too many people who are driven by uh, their righteousness, whether it's political righteousness or economic or social or racial or whatever. And we have forgotten that we are all human beings. And if you believe in God, remember, God created us all in everybody's religion and uh, you know, it's it's hard to be discriminatory once you thought that out. So, Ron, uh, pardon me, uh, Chris, this is a most enjoyable conversation. We'll, let's do it again and talk about the rest of your programs, which you've got one on baseball coming up and maybe others, uh, and uh, we'll see them on television and wherever. Uh, the name of our program is, Chris, uh, with respect, because we try to have respect for everybody. And we're on every Sunday and Thursday. And until next time, remember that our motto is, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.